Do you have what it takes to transform your income into a higher net worth? In today's show, we analyze the six behavioral traits that you must possess in order to build true wealth. Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. What's up, everyone? Happy New Year. Really excited you joined me today. Thank you so much for being here. We have got a ton of great things planned for 2018. Super pumped on it. The soon-to-launch new website at financialresidency.com and really all the exclusive content that I'll be creating for our community. Today's interview is one that you're not going to want to miss. You're going to want to hear the whole thing. I talked to Sarah Fala, owner of Data Points, which is a technology company that provides financial planners with psychometric assessments based on data and research from her father, Dr. Thomas Stanley. You might recognize his name as he's the author of The Millionaire Next Door and The Millionaire Mind. Sarah specializes in the measurement of behaviors and personalities. And throughout her life, she was influenced by her father's work. And as they collaborated together throughout her career, she recognized that he really did have the measures that could predict and help people understand the behaviors that were required with respects to building wealth. And over the past few years, she's taken the research behind her and her father's work and created this amazing technology platform that has become data points. Sarah and I have a great conversation breaking down the six behavioral factors that they have scientifically proven factor into the likelihood of success of transforming your income into net worth. And as she states, they measure the patterns of behaviors that can impact the financial success and actual building wealth. And these important factors of building wealth on your own and maintaining wealth, it eliminates the notion that the only way you can become wealthy is to have it passed down from generation to generation. These sets of behaviors and experiences that they've shown to relate to net worth, regardless of your age, your income, your percentage of wealth that has been received through gifts or inheritance. And I I find it fascinating that the thing that surprised Sarah the most when we were talking, when I asked her this was when she lays out all her research and she sees all the data laid out, it really only boiled down to just a few things. It was discipline, spending time learning and increasing your financial acumen, actually caring about your finances and being able and willing to do the things required to build wealth regardless of how tough it may or may not be. To basically sum it up, that was a long-winded way of saying that there's no black box. There's no magic pill. It's simply just hard work, dedication, and increasing your financial knowledge that'll actually allow you to transform your income into net worth and building true wealth. And while my firm, Physician Wealth, subscribes to the tools that DataPoints offers, they're not readily available to the public. But Sarah gave the financial residency community a huge gift for the new year. It was the ability to take the shortened versions of these three assessments. And so I'll be posting the links in the financial residency Facebook group, our community group. So make sure you go there and take them and leave a comment and let us know how you like them and and what they told you. And hopefully you learned something about yourself. Sarah also just finished up her new book, which will be released in 2018. So be on the lookout for it. And while she couldn't go into too much detail on it, 
it will basically be looking at the behaviors in the millionaire next door 20 years after the fact and seeing how those measurements that her father had started with and created in, in 1996 when the book first launched to see how those have held up over the test of time. And I, I really, I just can't wait to read this. It's going to be a must read in 2018. So be on the lookout for it. Also, before today's show, I want to make sure to announce this important disclaimer. I am a fee-only financial planner and a fiduciary for my clients. But let's be honest, I don't know you or anything about you. This show is for educational purposes only and shouldn't be taken as legal or financial advice. Please consult your attorney, CPA, or your fee-only financial planner before you take any action or make any important financial decisions. Here is this week's digestible tip. We're at the brand new year and you set a thousand goals that you want to crush going into this year. You've got this like either mental note of what you want to accomplish or you're one of the few people that actually write down your goals. But the odds are is that there's way too many of them. And what realistically happens, unfortunately, is that you're going to complete just a few of them and many are going to be left without that nice little pretty check mark next to them or crossed off that list. And to make an even sadder revelation, the goals that you actually really want to accomplish, they call them the BHAG goals or those big, hairy, audacious goals. The ones that you really want to do, those are usually the ones that are left undone. So my tip is to create one goal that you really want to accomplish this year. Make it a stretch goal, something that you might not actually be able to complete in just a year's time. And then take that goal and break it into smaller goals, ones that could be completed in, let's say, six months. And then take those smaller goals and break those into more manageable goals, maybe in a one-month or a three-month period that could be accomplished. Here's a quick example. Say I wanted to lose 50 pounds, which let's be real, I probably should. That's a pretty tough stretch goal. If I could break that into a smaller goal, let's say 25 pounds over the next six months, then that doesn't sound as crazy or, or tough to do. And then I break it into smaller goals. Well, I need to lose then eight pounds in a quarter. Well, that's two to three pounds in a month. Heck, that's less than a pound a week. Well, can I do a pound a week? Yeah, that seems pretty easy. And all of a sudden that goal just that, that seemed insane seems quite manageable. So figure out what that one goal is and break it into smaller and smaller manageable goals. Write it down, actually write it down and you're going to accomplish it. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm thrilled and super excited to have you on. So as you know, we talk to young physicians. That's uh, basically the listener base. What I want out of our conversation here is to really talk about and, and let them walk away with some really actionable thoughts on building wealth and our true wealth potential. So if you could, can you describe the behaviors around really building true wealth? Absolutely. So in terms of the kinds of things that really anyone would would have to engage in in order to meet any goal. So think, you know, when we think about the things that are important to building wealth, they include aspects that really are related to things like discipline. So we cover those with a measure called frugality. So we look at really the ability to spend in a way that's conducive to building wealth. Also things like you know, focusing, being able to attend to kind of the minutia of financial management. Also spending time planning. So those, those tend to be kind of the things that we think about 
when we know, or rather when we're studying and, and understanding somebody's ability to build wealth long-term. Gotcha. And are those like the key characteristics or, or factors when you're, you're looking at like, will someone be successful? Will they be able to achieve true wealth? Right. So really, we look at those three that I mentioned, as well as things like confidence in financial decision making. So, Mm. you know, the ability to make wise decisions and and not necessarily be overconfident, right, And, and try to beat the market, for example. The other ones that are really important in terms of their ability to predict net worth long term, include aspects that we call responsibility uh, or aspects of responsibility. So individuals that view themselves as able to impact their financial success tend to be more financially successful. That's in, that, that sounds pretty straightforward, but that's in comparison to individuals or really any of us that think that other things are impacting us. So, okay, well, I can't build wealth because of this or the economy's bad, so I'm not going to be able to, you know, meet my financial goals. So individuals that view outside elements as impacting their ability to build wealth often struggle to do so. And there are other areas as well, like social indifference, and we can talk about that one. Mm -hmm. And that's really, you know, the viewpoint that, I know, and again, especially if we're talking about physicians, I know that maybe my colleagues or maybe um, folks that I went to school with are driving and buying and wearing certain things, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be indifferent to what's going on in relation to consumer behavior. And we know that that predicts net worth as well. Mm -hmm. That's the concept of the keeping up with the Joneses. Yes, exactly. Yep. What I'd like to do, um, we will definitely talk about each one of these, is I'd like to go through each factor and Mm -hmm. why these factors were chosen and kind of how each one maybe interrelates or or not to kind of give strengths and weaknesses on, you know, will someone who displays these three factors are more likely to experience true wealth versus someone who necessarily maybe only has one of those three in the part that you were talking about, like the, the core foundation. So if yep. you don't mind, can we tackle each one of those things? So I, I know we talked about a few of them, but let's maybe just start with frugality and kind of go from there. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's perfect. And two, you know, I, I should mention that really when we're looking at the factors that we studied, and these are kind of the same concepts that came out of the millionaire next door mm-hmm. and that have been studied for a long time, they're really factors that are important in building wealth on your own and maintaining that wealth. So imagine, again, that you are someone that doesn't have a nest egg, that wasn't given a trust account, that doesn't have any, any inheritance coming or anything like that. So when we think about these factors, we're thinking about it in the context of, I'm trying to build wealth on my own. What are the characteristics that I need to exhibit? What are the behaviors I need to engage in to do that on my own? So not that, you know, just wanted to bring that up too. But yeah, we can start with frugality for sure. That clearly was one of the main, um, I guess, the most interesting pieces that came out of the work that my father did for the many years that he studied mm-hmm. self-made Americans. And again, really, it's it's a focus and a behavior on just really being committed to spending in a way, again, like I said, that's conducive to building wealth, adhering to a budget, 
you know, not spending frivolously. And that really is one of the key factors in being able to transform income into wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe he called it the cornerstone of wealth <laughs> building, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. So if someone necessarily, I mean, it, there's all sorts of levels of frugality, right? And, sure, absolutely. Is it mean that you like truly have to be like the most frugal person possible to build wealth? Or is it just some behaviors within, because frugality is a kind of a big thing, right? Is it just some parts of frugality like in your life or does it really need to be shown throughout your whole life? Well, I think there are a couple of different things I'll say about that. First, what we know is that if we know that from the research that we've done, we know that individuals that grow up to be financially successful often had parents that were frugal, but at the same time, those parents often were communicating why they were being frugal. So it wasn't, you know, we're not going to do everything that our neighbors do. It's here's why we're not doing that. You know, we have these other goals. We have these other financial goals. So they're educating them along with being frugal and demonstrating that. So even if someone obviously didn't grow up in an environment like that, they can still change their, you know, their their ways and certainly that's why we are committed to working with advisors, for example, that really want to help their, their clients improve behaviors. So this one in particular is one that, that can be improved over time. Mm-hmm. But you asked kind of the degree to which you have to be frugal. I mean, of course, that depends on what your lifestyle is and how, how quickly you want to reach your goals. So do you have to give up your Starbucks? I, I don't know. It just depends on on where you are today and how quickly you want to reach your goals. So it's also an attitude. So we measure it behaviorally, but certainly it's an attitude as well. But that attitude has to be displayed through behaviors in order for it to be effective. You know, we have uh, friends and acquaintances that will say, well, I'm very, very frugal, but then you know that they're they're spending above their means in, in places that don't really make sense. So it really does depend on the behavior and on your situation. That makes perfect sense. So, yeah, I was kind of referring to, you know, the person that not necessarily just doesn't go to Starbucks because it, because it costs four or five dollars and could make it at home for a dollar. I was more thinking of the lines like, you know, consistently spending or overspending, you know, shopping for the best deals and making sure that is it all aspects of their life have to be frugal or frugal. is it, or okay. is it the, those big important things like buying a car and things like that? Right. So let's take, let's take the example of even where you live, right? So starting with that mm. and, and what we know is that when kind of you make the decision about where you're going to live, that can ultimately impact all of your other spending decisions because of the influence of other people around you. So while certainly it's small things, those big things are important and not necessarily the car portion of that, but really where you live can really influence the rest of all of your spending decisions. So from that perspective, you know, thinking about where you either rent your home or purchase your first home, that can lead to kind of trickle down spending, if you will, that can impact your ability to build wealth long term. So the big things matter, certainly. But then consistency and spending later with those smaller purchases matter as well. I love that you put in consistency because I think that is something that most people will have a big challenge with when it comes to frugality Mm. is you might be frugal uh, every once in a while. You might be frugal for a few months and then all of a sudden Black Friday comes and you're like, whoops. Exactly. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, and you think about like dieting or, you know, trying to run a marathon, you can't just wake up and run five miles to start training if you haven't done that in years. It's a slow process and it, and it has to be, as you said, you know, as we're saying here, you know, done consistently for it to be effective. That's a great analogy. So I'd like to go to the next one. I believe we were talking about confidence and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what exactly do you guys define as confidence? Because I would think it'd be different than what I'm, I know that you guys mean from it. Yeah. So really here we're talking about confidence in financial decision-making Certainly, that can be related to just your overall self-esteem and and that kind of thing. But here, we're really talking about being even a leader in your household related to financial management. Mm. Um, Also, having you know knowledge and spending time on those things. So that's generally what uh, relates to confidence in financial decision making. It really covers things like you know being comfortable making large-scale financial decisions and not second-guessing yourself and that kind of thing. We tend to find those that are confident, again, are, are able to, to build wealth long-term. And I think I mentioned this earlier, but we'll, we can spend a little bit of time on this too because it's, it's the fun one to talk about, but the overconfidence thing. So I think mm. you know the Bitcoin factor that we've talked about before so if you're very overconfident, then you have a tendency to assume that you can beat the market, for example, in investing and that kind of thing. So that's not what we're talking about either. What we're really talking about here is having what we often call effective confidence. So enough confidence that allows you to make decisions for your household that will ultimately lead to financial success long term. Perfect. So it's not referring to overconfidence in the sense that um, you're saying, oh, I'm smarter than the rest, I can beat the market exactly. kind of thing. You're talking about, you know, what areas of your financial life, not just investing, that you view yourself as confident or not as confident, the emotional side of it. Right, exactly. Yep. And I think that's one, again, so we measure things behaviorally and the way that we see individuals sort of improve in this area, especially if they don't have any knowledge about financial management is to to study essentially it's like you know in some ways it's like being in school again but it's studying it's it's reading it's obviously talking to financial professionals and building that knowledge so that you have the confidence to make decisions that are in line with your long-term financial goals Mm -hmm. you mentioned a, a few things one is not having the necessity of a financial acumen not having enough financial mm-hmm. knowledge and to go study and read up. And I would highly suggest that anyone listening, um, obviously I'm trying to help you through the podcast and some of the other content I'm creating, but go research and pay attention to your finances. Learn what you can before you talk to anyone that could potentially help you manage or you know, sell you some insurance or anything like mm-hmm. read up, study up, become more confident in this. And I believe this is kind of where you're, you're going mm-hmm. with this confidence thing, become more confident. So you know a little bit about what you're talking about. And you also know how to protect yourself from someone who is knowing that physicians don't really have a lot of financial knowledge. You never took any courses during college or, or training or med school that really helped you you know, out in this, even though I think they should, it's well known that they didn't and that most physicians come out without really any financial knowledge. So read up, study up, pay attention, gain confidence in this. And one other point I, I wanted to bring up, Sarah, was working with clients at Physician Wealth, 
the clients that are married tend to have a household, I, I, I think of it as a household CFO. Mm-hmm. Right? One yep. person is responsible for the finances and the other person almost checks out. And I'm wondering, do you think that's, and I know we can talk next about responsibility, um, mm-hmm. but do you think that's somewhat to do with confidence as well? You know, I think that that has to do with a couple of different things. I think that, number one, it depends on so the couple, especially if it's dual income, right? So mm-hmm. if the household CFO is taking care of everything and the other member of the household is really focused full-time uh, and maybe working you know, many, many hours. It just may be a lack of time and, you know, a lack of energy to take on anything else within their household. So I I could see that as part of it as well. Another piece is that it's maybe a lack of interest. So, you know, for total disclosure, finances from a, how do I get into my, rather, how do I, you know, balance a checkbook and all of the mechanics of it is not something that I'm interested in, in in terms of my hobbies or things that I like doing. So I'm more of on the artsy side, if you Mm -hmm. will. So it could just be a lack of interest. But I take, you know, obviously, because of the work that I do, I take an interest in it and want to learn now and luckily have had resources to do that. So it could just be a lack of interest. But, you know, there are a lot, there are a couple of different reasons why somebody might check out, if you will. You don't want that, of course. And certainly for individuals who have ever experienced a loss in their life. So, you know, where one member of the household passes away, maybe that was the household CFO, you know, being able to have the knowledge and the skills within this particular job, if you will, is really important. I'm curious because you self diagnosed yourself as someone who's more artsy and not <laughs> uh-huh. super interested in like the the aspects of personal finance. If a physician was like you, but not married to someone that does like it, and mm. they're, they're kind of their own CFO, if you will, mm-hmm. how do they go about understanding the behaviors that are causing or potentially could cause them to not have true wealth potential or, or not really build wealth? Right. Yeah. Just to clarify. So I think there's a difference in kind of the day-to-day management, paying bills, that kind of thing, and overall financial health of the household, that strategic view Mm -hmm. of what's going on from a financial perspective. So when I was self-disclosing, right? Mm-hmm. Now I feel like I'm in, on, in the therapist room, but Uh-oh. I have sort of that, I, I want to know what's going on from a strategic perspective, but I'm maybe not interested in balancing things and all of that. That's not you know something I'm interested in. But there are kind of two different aspects to that household financial manager role. But if you have a household and you've probably worked with folks like this where both parties aren't, you know, maybe that's not their skill set and their Mm -hmm. interest areas. I think that, again, what's been helpful for me is for someone, whether that's someone in your household, again, if that's not the case, or a professional to help and demonstrate what those long-term goals are. What, What do you want to do with your life and how is money allowing you to be able to do that? Even in starting our own business, you know, that becomes very important to us to understand those big long-term goals and then the individual behaviors that allow us to get there. Well, those are things that we have to improve on or, you know, be aware of those within each of us. And I'm referring to, I say us, I'm referring to to our household financial manager or officer, if you will. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there with <laughs> diagnosing <laughs> no, okay. and, and all that, but I think it was really interesting. And it was almost like a, you can outsource some of it, but you can't outsource everything. No, and exactly. so even if you're not really interested in this, in order to achieve the goals that you want, you will need to do some research and some study Absolutely. to gain more confidence. And and I think this kind of segments perfectly into responsibility and mm-hmm. and taking some responsibility. So that also could seem quite generic, but I was wondering if you could discuss the, the next factor of responsibility. Yeah. So this one in particular, I think maybe goes hand in hand with that aspect of, oh, I'm just going to let someone else take care of this and I don't need to think about this. It also goes along with self-esteem in that some individuals feel that they just really can't do anything to improve kind of where they are. This is just how I am. You know, I I can't change. But those who have sort of an effective level of responsibility, we tie this factor to what's known in psychology as locus of control. There was actually a, a paper recently that looked at that as it relates to financial behaviors. But those who have a really high internal locus of control believe that they can impact their success. So I think, and again, we, you know, some of the data that we've seen so far looks like, or rather those who can go through medical school, for example, and make it through and go through residency tend to have a higher, if you will, locus of control. They, they are able to say, I can get through this. This is, you know, a long-term kind of process and I have the skills that will allow me to do that long term. Many of the physicians, for example, that are in the data that we have, they tend to be a little bit on the higher side on responsibility. If you can take that belief that you can do things and apply it to financial management, that's how you can become more effective at it and build wealth long term. Yeah. So this is really talking about responsibility, but it's the there's positive and negatives to this, right? Yes. You're responsible oh, because yes. I busted my ass and I, you know, I worked harder than everyone else. I'm here because I worked hard. Or yep. it's the other side of it is, you know, oh, that's not my fault because the economy's bad or the government did this or they're going to do this. Right, kind of right. Thing, right? Yep. Okay. Exactly. I just wanted to recap that, yeah. that it was good and bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. The high side is is I can do this, right? And and I'm going to impact my financial success. Being low on that scale or the low on that factor is exactly as you said, you know, other things are impacting me. Other things are impacting my my lot in life, if you will. From a psychological perspective, if we were talking about individuals who, or we were talking about clinical issues, we would say that they may have exhibit some learned helplessness, that they're saying, I, I just can't do this. I'm not going to be able to meet my spending goals or adhere to a budget, that kind of thing. And really being able to turn that around and saying, okay, you know, if I if I make these small steps, I'm actually going to impact my financial success long term. But it's going to require me to be disciplined. But there are things that I can do on my own to impact that success. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked about confidence and we've talked about responsibility the next one down the the list of factors here, and I guess they're in no order, right? Right. No specific yep. order, but but is planning and monitoring. And right. can you dive into this? Because I know that this concept was throughout the book in, in The Millionaire. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you could dissect this, if you will. Definitely. So this is <laughs> this is kind of the opposite of what we were talking about before. This is really being attuned to what's going on. 
in terms of your financial life, really planning, anticipating what you're going to need in the future, um, and really monitoring what's going on, monitoring your financial health, if you will. And individuals that are able to do that, that can set aside time each week or each month, depending on what's needed, that can set and meet goals related to financial management and have an understanding of how they are from a financial perspective, from, again, checking in on their, on their finances, tend to be better at building wealth long-term. And I go back to the example of, you know, running a marathon or, or half marathon or a 5K. Maybe you're, maybe you're not a runner, mm-hmm. but the same things apply. So that's definitely something that is a factor that, that can impact your ability to build wealth. And you mentioned time, like setting aside time to do whatever it is, budgeting or to review insurance or to read up on insurance or whatever that may be. Is there a, I'm just trying to kind of think of actionable things for the listeners. Is there a certain amount of time that research maybe has shown that if they dedicate X amount of hours per week or per month, that they are more likely to be successful? That's a great question. So um, I don't think there's a set time. What we do know from our the research, even the last or the latest study that we just completed that's going to be part of the new book is that typically those who are prodigious accumulators of wealth, so you may remember that phrase, mm-hmm. so those that really are able to transform their income into wealth tend to spend about two to three times more per month in terms of hours on financial management than under accumulators. You know, we don't have a magic bullet in terms of the the actual number, but we know that those who spend more time tend to be more financially successful. Mm -hmm. It's more like educating yourself, right? And building that confidence, taking responsibility for it, putting a plan in action, and then actually committing to the plan. Exactly. Yep. Scheduling time to do it each month. Exactly. Mm -hmm. To actually go through it, even if it's not the most fun thing, right? The the people who don't necessarily nerd out on this like I do, they, they're not excited to go like, oh, what did I spend this month? And, you know, was it over or under or, you know, what can we do better? Right. Be- exactly. Some people don't like that and that's okay. But it's the commitment to actually setting the time aside to, to still review it and maybe some extra time to become a little more financially educated. Yep, exactly. Yep. That's something that we've seen consistently over time. So even that kind of research was done back in 1996. And we know that those accumulators of wealth, those who can really transform income into wealth, um, spent, I think it was about somewhere around 10 or so hours each month to studying and planning for investment related decisions versus those who are under accumulators of wealth spent about five. So it was about twice as much time that prodigious accumulators of wealth did that. Yeah. And everyone's going to be different, right? Some people have some really basic financial planning needs and some have some very intense, complicated stuff. But in, in general, you're saying that people who tend to be more successful spend about twice the amount of time on this and commitment exactly. on this to be, than those that are, aren't as successful. Exactly. Yep. Awesome. So we've got two more left um, of the factors of building wealth. And the next yep. one is focus. 
Right, right. So this is, <laughs> the example here is how many times do you check your phone a day? Now, in some occupations, that is absolutely required and you have to do that. But really, this is, can you focus? Can you, when you set aside that time to study and plan and really understand what's going on with your financial life, are you distracted? Are you checking out Facebook? Are you doing other things within your household? Are you not really paying attention? So it's really using that time wisely versus being distracted from your goals. I think that's fascinating. And, and what comes to my mind first that I've, I've wanted to actually ask you for a while is Uh-oh. people that score <laughs> low on focus. And this might be people who multitask. Right. Right. And it might be efficiently multitasking, but still you're not focusing on the issues. Or what about the people who have like ADHD? Are they just doomed forever (laughs) in in building wealth or? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, Certainly they would, they may score low on this. We've heard that before, but no, the idea here is even if maybe you're a multitasker in general and, and you tend to move from thing to thing really quickly and you want to be doing a lot of things at one time, really focus and get the most out of that time. We're all very busy, but if that's important to you and and we know that time spent is actually going to help you, as you've mentioned, build knowledge, Mm -hmm. build confidence, then using that time effectively is really the way in which you would improve in this area. And you're not doomed. I get distracted too. My husband will say things like, oh, there's a rabbit and I'll turn my head and, Mm -hmm. you know, but it really is using that time effectively and, and being focused on the goal at hand. It's, just, it's really like studying, quite frankly, for an exam or anything like that. And I think that's a really good distinction to make right there is that it doesn't mean that in every aspect of your life, if you have like if you're great at multitasking, that might be OK. But when it comes to specific financial topics, whether, uh, you know, we're talking about the time and everything, when you set aside that time, it's really important to be focused during that time to remove the distractions. You can be multitasking everywhere else, but in order to have a lot higher likelihood of achieving true wealth, then they need to be focused when they're talking or looking at their finances. Exactly. Yep. Got That's it. exactly right. That kind of transitioned us into the last one here. And this is yes. the one that I am the most curious about because at the time that the book was written, mm-hmm. Social media did not exist. No, no, So we're going to be talking about social indifference. And so I'd really like to have you give kind of a a high level of what what you're referring to here for maybe those that haven't read uh, the book. And then I kind of want to highlight this one a little bit and and understand how like social media either influences positively or negatively social indifference. Yep. That's a great intro to it too. You know, one of the main pieces or themes, if you will, in The Millionaire Next Door was this ability of those who could transform and come into wealth to ignore really what was going on around them, not worry about the car that their driver or rather that their neighbor just bought or the fact that their you know friends' children went to some private school, for example, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but um, really ignoring kind of the trends around them and doing things differently. And so that was really a, a theme throughout the book. You know, another piece of that, of course, was the fact that many people who were spending and I guess hyper consuming, if you will, often, you know, had very high incomes, but didn't have any net worth whatsoever and any wealth really. 
And so, you know, again, fast forward to now where what our friends are doing or where they're vacationing or the kinds of birthday parties they're having for their children, Mm -hmm. they're all broadcast and you can have access to them at any time. What we found with this factor, just as, you know, was mentioned in The Millionaire Next Door, is that individuals who are indifferent, which that maybe sounds negative, but it's a good thing when you're trying to build wealth, those who can ignore all of that noise, if you will, about what others are doing, are better able to transform income into wealth. So we see that consistently, whether we're talking about high net worth, high income people, if we're talking about individuals that are making, you know, between $25,000 and $100,000 up to high income earners as well. It's fairly consistent. So yeah, it's a really interesting one. Just as an example today on Facebook, on a group, kind of a community group within the area that I live, one of the folks on there was talking about how she's so excited about Bitcoin (laughs) and that Hmm. if anybody wants to know about how she's making money with it to let her know. And I thought to myself, this is a great example of, you know, sometimes why you have to ignore what's going on around you anyway. So that's that particular aspect of building wealth. You know, physicians, society kind of puts this, this stigma on them. It's like, Oh, you're Mm -hmm. a doctor. Like, you must drive a $100,000 car and live in a 6,000 square foot house and all these other kind of social pressures that they feel. And if we're talking about kind of this keeping up with the Joneses, like they're almost keeping up with what just society thinks of them and what they should have. And so in your research, how do doctors kind of fare in social indifference? So we typically see them scoring lower than our average And they're typically sort of in that low category when it comes to social indifference. And I think that's because kind of what you said and and what was alluded to in The Millionaire Next Door, which is there's sort of this role that they're supposed to play as doctors. And and we see this too as executives or as an attorney or something, some other type of professional role that's very well-defined, just as you said, you know, that they're supposed to have a certain kind of car and, and live in a certain kind of house. And so I think some education would be really helpful. You know, that's not the uniform, if you will, of someone that's going to be able to transform income into wealth long term and it will actually hinder them. And so I, this piece is really is really important, particularly for physicians. Yeah. And I, I see how social media can influence this. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like with social media, everyone posts all the positive, fun mm-hmm sometimes expensive things that they're doing. (laughs) No one says like, oh man, I just got in a fight with my wife and I was probably wrong, right? And she'll tell you I was always wrong, but I got in a fight (laughs) with my wife and it, you know, it's like, you know, it's Wyatt's third birthday and look at all the cool stuff we've got him or, you know, we're traveling to Fiji. And so you're seeing all these like positive things all over. You're just bombarded. Is social indifference, not just around physicians, but like in general, is that kind of getting lower? Like people are are feeling like they need to keep up because they're seeing this on social media all the time? Right. You can definitely see that in the research that's been done, for example, with teen buying behaviors and individuals that are sort of growing up with this. So that is to say they've they've never known a world without social media. Mm -hmm. We certainly know that it's changing in terms of the research that we've done. We see it across all income levels, all net worth levels. And really all job types as well. Yeah. And we talked just before we started recording on this, mm-hmm. this tweet that was mind your own business. 
Right. right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. An undergrad student at a university where a graduate student in industrial psychology is teaching had said, you know, that that's really the the big, the best advice or the main thing that's important when building wealth is minding your own business. And I kind of took that to mean ignoring what's going on around you and, and really get, keeping to the business of building wealth and meeting goals. And so it was a great quote. Yeah, I, I think it was. That's why I wanted to bring it up here. And I, yeah. I, I want to switch a little bit to kind of round this out yeah. to let people know like what you're working on, right? So you have a company called Data Points, which I uh, at Physician Wealth subscribe to. I absolutely love the work you guys are doing there. I'm just curious if you can like give us the, uh, the behind the door scene mm-hmm. on, you know, what are the trends you're seeing and what is your data kind of showing you? Yeah, you know, so I'll talk a little bit about the latest study that we're working on, which is a large-scale study looking at investor-related decision-making, things like being composed and financial acumen. We asked recently, or in, in this last study, we asked the question, imagine a friend of yours was going to invest 50% of their savings into the U.S. stock market, what would you tell them? And then we were looking at some of the word the word cloud that came out of that because it was an open-ended question. It was just really interesting to, to see things like, good luck, like not, not, in a, <laughs> not in a friendly tone, more like a sarcastic tone and things like risky. And, and so, so the perceptions of how individuals are viewing investing right now are, is really a sort of a hot topic, if, uh, mm. particularly for millennials and Gen X and Gen Y folks. And so part of the research that we're doing is looking at, again, composure and acumen kind of across all ages and, and all net worth and income ranges. And we're seeing that there is, in fact, a relationship between what you prefer from an investment perspective and really what your capacity is to take on risk with your level of knowledge about the investing. And so I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, that it's in everyone's best interest to spend some time to know the basics and even beyond the basics of financial management. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. It's like your your need to take risk and your ability to take risk. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm curious, because you say it was kind of a hot topic right now with investing. Like, is that, do you think that's because as they come into working age and they've seen this gigantic bull market and, you know, at market highs, they're kind of showing a, an interest in it? Or, you know, what is, is there anything yeah. that we could tell from the data from that? Yeah, I think that what we're seeing is a little bit of, uh, in some ways, sort of the opposite. So we're seeing individuals that, are a little bit more apprehensive. I think that goes back to the good luck comment, a little more apprehensive about investing primarily because they were very attuned to what was going on in 2008 and nine. So there's some apprehension about that in the market or rather in, in certain, I guess, age groups, if you will. You know, we're seeing too that related to investor knowledge you know, there are certain things that still kind of myths about investing that are still holding true. Mm. For example, we continue to see individuals that will agree with a statement that, you know, anyone can beat the market, that kind of thing. And so those continue to abound, even if even if people are apprehensive. So we have these two sort of things going on where we're seeing people apprehensive about investing their own money, but yet there's still all of these myths about investing that are still around, 
And I think that education can help with both of those things. Yeah. The internet, Google, all of that is, is your friend in this. Um, there's, <laughs> there's not necessarily always great information out there, but there's some key resources that are really good at presenting this information. One last kind of thing on this is out of all your research and, and all the expertise that you have, what is the most surprising thing that you've found out while doing this research about wealth potential or wealth building? I think one of the most, I guess, straightforward things that I found, and maybe it's not that exciting, is when I go back to the example of setting any kind of life goal. Even before I began this research, of course, I knew that there were individuals who could build wealth on their own. But you know, to see it sort of laid out that, that it's almost as if, you know, there are steps to do this, but they're not easy and they're not straightforward. And they require us to really look at ourselves and say, can I really do this? Or where am I going to fall short? And then am I willing to make the change to meet those goals? So that's not really a research answer, but I think that that's mm -hmm. what was most interesting about the work is that, it's there. It's sort of in black and white, if you will. It's not a mystery. It's discipline and you know, spending time learning. But it's just whether or not people are going to be able and willing to do the things that, that are required that can impact how they build wealth. So you're telling me there's no black box and my mind is blown. Oh, well, <laughs> well there are a lot of those, but I, know. I, I don't know how much time we have to talk about those. And now it's time for the curbside consult. What are the top tips that you would have for physicians that are transitioning from residency to being an attending? You know, I think this goes back to this sort of massive increase, if you will, in income that comes right from that mm -hmm. transition to that's what that's kind of what I think about when I think about that transition phase. I think that my advice would be to celebrate, but not celebrate every day especially if you are someone who enjoys celebrations, to say all of a sudden, well, even though I have this high income, I'm just going to all of a sudden, you know, not go out to eat. I'm not going to do anything. I think making sure that you take time throughout your life, if you will, to celebrate small wins, but not do that every single day. I think that's what trips people up. It's like, okay, I've got this income. I can go shop. Oh, yes. And I can go do this. Oh, yes. And we can go on this vacation and we can buy this car. I think acknowledging the success that you've had and moving into that phase is something to celebrate, but people get tripped up when they decide that that's kind of the norm, that every day is going to be a celebration of where we are. Mm, so I don't yeah. know if that helps or if that's too, <laughs> no, too that, psychological. I think that's yep. perfect. It's in, And I look at it it's, and there's like the white coat investor talks about living it like a resident for three to five years after becoming mm -hmm. a resident, mm -hmm. right? And, exactly. and I look at it as lifestyle creep. Right. You're going to have yep. some don't let it go nuts, mm -hmm. right? Just, you know, how much is in moderation? Exactly. And I actually have an article I wrote on Kevin MD that I'll post in the show notes that talks just about this, right? Is how much lifestyle inflation is too much. Yep, exactly. So, you know, perfect answer. Wow, what a great interview with Sarah. And Sarah, thank you again so much for being on the show. I really hope you guys were able to take something of value out of that interview. I'm always impressed every time I talk to Sarah about what she's working on and what the data is telling her. And really, I, I can't wait for the next book to be out. Honestly, I can't even believe it's been 20 years since The Millionaire Next Door was released. Like Time seriously flies. What was supposed to be released over the holiday was a show with my wife, Taylor, and I, but with two sick kiddos, and that turns out got us kind of both a bit under the weather. 
we weren't actually able to record the show. And I'm really sorry about that. As always, I really appreciate you guys all being here. I know that there's a lot of things competing for your attention. And I'm honored that you allow me to join you for part of your day, whether that's on your commute or in the gym or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I wish you a happy and prosperous new year. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode is ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.